Welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel. I'm Ben Simon. I'm Jesse Spur. I'm Jess Stokes Parish, and you're listening to Simulcast. Connecting the healthcare simulation community. So welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel, and today I'm joined by another of the co-producers uh, of Simulcast, and that is Jessica Stokes Parish. How are you, Jess? I'm great, and you? Yes, very well, thank you. And uh, excited that we're going to be talking about moulage, which we haven't done for a while on the show. That's your special interest area, and in particular, and impressively, congratulations, you've, uh, since we last spoke, got your PhD formally in this mm-hmm. area. So maybe we could start by doing a little bit of a wind back here and tell us about this PhD, try and condense five or six years of hard work <laughs> into a digestible precy for a simulcast listeners. Yes, okay, I'll attempt to do that. You know what they say about when you ask a scientist a question, they never shut up. <laughs> so it's been a few years now since I finished the PhD, but I I wasn't that sold on moulage, which is kind of why I got into uh, researching it because I was looking for a topic and I'd found myself applying moulage in trauma settings and it looked so fake that I just thought, like, what's the point of this? These students are confused. What's the theory behind it? And I discovered that there was none at the time directly linked to it. But I did find that there was a lot of history. And for those that aren't familiar, moulage dates back to the 16th and 17th centuries. Some historical papers even date it back to Egypt and mummification. Uh, But back in the 16th century, doctors of the time tried to preserve signs of illness and injuries, and they would commission an artist to take a mould of that illness and make a wax replica, and then they'd paint it. And of course, we don't quite use it in that way anymore, but now it looks more like use of special effects makeup, 3D printing, tattoos, which I want to talk about tonight. But my PhD explored, well, what does the literature currently say? Where should we go with this? What's the important side of things? And um, I finished with a study that explored engagement in undergraduate medical students and the use of moulage, which was a huge effort. I don't think I really quite appreciated how much work these kind of trials take. (laughs) Yes, and uh, it sounds familiar with every PhD candidate I've ever known. Oh, totally. Uh, Like I look back now and I'm like, primary supervisor, you should have told me I was biting off too much. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I guess to get into your topic area, like I I think to encapsulate where you were at, I understand it now, in that you would see these attempts to create, for instance, compound fractures or burns on a patient, and a lot of effort went into it. I know people that tried to get awards for the most realistic blood mm. and the most realistic vomit and uh, a lot of effort goes into it and as you say it's in theory in the name of having high physical resemblance and hence engagement but I also saw and I think you'd have described this before how it can become quite a distraction where people go oh wow look at that instead mm. of concentrating on the task that they have at, at hand so these were the kind of things that as an ICU nurse coming into doing sim you're thinking hang on this doesn't all add up is that right yeah yeah that's right and and I've always been such a um a sucker for evidence and for tell me the why like give me the why before I buy into this and um and that was lacking Mm. so when you did your uh 
<clears throat> Delphi study and when you did your other work, what did you find out about the sort of practice and why people were doing things and did they have a good way of trying to think about their engagement? That's a really good question. I think a lot of being wed to this idea of being super realistic and that those assumptions that highly realistic means superior. And what I found from digging into the literature and especially looking at things like theories of realism and looking at Peter Diekman's work and Jenny Rudolph and uh, all of those people was that we were focusing too much on only the physical element instead of the emotional and believable elements, which is where moulage really comes into play because Sometimes it's not necessarily about that realistic replication. It's actually what does it do to trigger me to the next sequence in the simulation? So if I'm a surgeon and I need to be doing a laparotomy, I'm going to need sufficient physical realism to be able to do that. But if I'm an emergency physician and I think, oh, there's a compound fracture there, I'll need to manage that before I can actually move the patient to a different area. I might yeah. just need a picture of it in front of me. I might yeah. not actually need to see dripping blood and what looks like broken bone. Yeah, potentially. And look, we I don't think we even really understand the answer to that question yet because largely most of the work about moulage has occurred in undergraduate settings. So we haven't really explored, well, what's that difference then with the senior clinician who has a mental model and knows how to navigate and can put the puzzle together without very many cues whereas with the undergraduates um, what I found in my work was by actually removing moulage they made a lot more assumptions about what was important what wasn't important but also what you're talking about this whole idea of distraction um, the students are looking to make meaning out of a simulation so they will look at any cue that is there and believe that if that cue is there that's important and then they get tunnel visioned on that and I talked about that in my paper um, how does moulage contribute to medical students perceived engagement in simulation and that's in advances in simulation they talked a lot about their feelings about moulage and I did have measures exploring you know time to treat uh, whether they omitted things and they did skip a few things when there wasn't moulage so probably of of note is things like PPE so when there was no moulage they didn't put gloves on but as soon as they saw moulage they put gloves on interesting mm-hmm. so I think there's something to be said there about you know habits and negative learning and trying to get in those routines but what they talked about and what struck me the most was they were trying to make sense of the simulation So if there wasn't enough visual cues to help them get from A to B, they spent their time trying to work out what the simulation was about as opposed to moving through the simulation. It's very interesting and and I think your difference between experienced and inexperienced is relevant here, isn't it? Because, in fact, experienced people might have very high demands of realism because mm. they know what real looks like, whereas yeah. with our medical students we might get away with something that is 
a little bit of a representation because they don't have that high expectation. And while we're talking papers, I'm reminded of Jerry Gormley talking about the uncanny valley yes. and the simulacrum and, in fact, the idea about being hyper-real. So, in fact, people come to expect this hyper-real version of reality when they come to sim and that's just as much of a danger as a completely unreal. Yeah, and I think there's also something to be said about matching the environment that you're in. So if you've got a mannequin, you're already looking at something that's fake. You already know immediately that is not real. This is a simulation. So you can kind of match that with your moulage because you're not not expecting them to think this is real because they know it's not. But if Mm. you have a simulated patient, for example, they're a real human. They've got skin that you can touch and interact with. How you do moulage on them surely is going to be different. Mm. All right. So very interesting. All right. So I think you sort of left your PhD calling for more of a research agenda or setting out a bit of a research agenda and uh, unsurprisingly people are answering that call. So one of the reasons we were going to chat tonight was because you were keen to give us a bit of an update on where this evidence base is at, whether it's to do with uh, engagement or whether it's to do with different techniques. So, yeah, what's happening in this field? Yes, it's really exciting. Like, obviously, I have a vested interest in looking at how many citations my papers have. Uh, <laughs> of course you do. It's all <laughs> like, about you, Jess. <laughs> let's just be honest. <laughs> but I do look at Google Scholar and go, oh, wow, I wouldn't have thought about that field or so some of the ones that are really interesting to me is there's there's some work around mental health that's kind of starting to to get there and um just as a like oh maybe we should use moulage in mental health simulations and variety settings uh more as visual cues on simulated patients etc and I think that more speaks to the level of research into mental health simulations which also is another kind of aside so any interested researchers out there simulation and mental health may be an area we're seeing more professions starting to explore it so historically moulage has had heaps of research in dermatological spaces Mm -hmm. lots of research in dermatology but i'm now seeing things like podiatry radiography um i'm starting some really interesting projects in dietetics. You spoke to me about this last week and I went, dietetics, what do you mean? But you're actually saying that there are different physical manifestations that may illustrate different kinds of malnutrition, for instance. Yeah. So um, our colleague that we both work with, um, Di Redlinger, she's she's leading the work in this area and it's it's really exciting. And I, I certainly wouldn't have considered it. Peter Tahan at University of Newcastle, she's been looking at podiatry um, and moulage and so particularly foot ulcers and things like that so foot care and creating realistic models for podiatrists to manage complex wound cases that they don't necessarily get to see every day so something about that high acuity but low frequency has a place in that but some of the key standout papers one is Naomi Shiner who's at the University of Derby in the UK she's finishing off her PhD and she's looking at the use of simulation and moulage in undergraduate diagnostic radiography education and to me that's really interesting because it's also another area of not what you think it's actually not about assessment it's about 
exposure to trauma. This is about students being comfortable with seeing traumatic situations to try and take scans and x-rays of things, typically that they would normally just have to be thrown into the situation. And to me, that's interesting because Defence has been doing this for a very long time and in the military they've used moulage as a way to desensitise their um, teams for many, many years and they've used moulage so differently um, as to what we have. But So this is really uh, interesting to me. The students really talked about how they could process their shock in a simulated space. They didn't pull Mm. the faces in front of patients. Yeah, this is so interesting, isn't it? And uh, I did have a look at the paper, and just for people listening, we'll put uh, links to the papers that Jess and I are talking about in the episode description. But I read that paper, and they had some very vivid-looking pictures of horrendous burns and disfigurement, and I was very interested that their take on this was exactly as you say, almost trying to inoculate the students to Mm. confronting visual things they might have. And it just strikes me, this is a minefield, Jess, Uh, you know, because you could have some quite significant unintended consequences. And I think the theory about inoculating people to be unfeeling in the face of confronting stuff is, again, really uh, vexed, isn't it? So yeah, yeah, pretty brave, I reckon. It's no straightforward stuff, that's for sure. And I mean, I I really liked how she included patient-centeredness as kind of the key component of the simulation, which, you know, when you think about that, then you go, okay, it's obviously not about desensitising them to the person, but actually getting them to remember there's a person there. Yeah. Um, Which they talked about, um, that they were so overly focused on this graphic burn that they even forgot there was a human there until they kind of moved and they realised you know Mm. um but yeah you're right there's a lot of complexity in something like this and I'm looking forward to seeing the rest of her work to see how she's kind of tackled some of that stuff because yeah it seems like you might need mental health first aid nearby to be managing that as well yeah but I think the concept of how do you uh manage to maintain professionalism and patient-centeredness in the face of challenging uh situations Mm. is actually a very good one Mm. Yeah, I, I, yeah, hats off to her for um, going down that particular path. Yep, yeah, okay. So that's thinking about using moulage in terms of training our responses to patients. Yeah. Mm. yeah. All right, well, what else is happening? Well, the other one that's really interesting to me is work by um, a colleague in Switzerland and his team, Daniel Bauer, um, and I had the privilege of visiting Daniel and his team at the University of Bern at the end of my PhD, Mm. end of 2019, just before the pandemic destroyed all hope of travel. (laughs) Um, Anyway, so I visited there and their program is really interesting. They have an amazing special effects um, makeup artist on site who has developed a number of moulds and casts for developing moulages. Um, and But this new paper that he's just published is very different to that. So the work that they've done before is all purely casting, moulding, it then dries. Then you, you use tattoo transfer and transfer it. It's probably some of the most realistic moulages that I've ever seen, like mm. so authentic, um, 
perfect dermatological conditions and they use it in their high stakes exams so that's why they pay so much attention to it and it's quite interesting isn't it because as it sounds like they are drawing on these fields of film and cinema and material science what things feel like and how to actually physically make them as opposed to the other whole world of trying to create realism through technology and virtual reality or augmented reality and trying to overlay for instance pictures on top of people or mannequins and I, I feel like these are sort of well, competing, overlapping, but they're, they're distinct fields that are all trying to build into this how do we create realism. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, I like, I was just fascinated by the art of it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something about that kind of um, hands-on artist element to it. But so that was, that was that. And I thought, like, this stuff is really great. It's fantastic, especially if you're doing high stakes um, exams and you're relying on, you know, people being able to assess these dermatological conditions. But it's a very complex skill. It's not that accessible to people both financially and skill-wise. Like you require a very highly trained individual. I can't do that. M- most of us couldn't do that. Mm. But what um, his team has released this year is actually the development of those moulages but as a two-dimensional transfer tattoo. So what they did was um, they got a copy of the findings. So in this instance they were using like um, splinter nails and hematomas on nails and things like that. So they got that, they got it validated by a clinical expert who said, yes, it looks real, then they digitized it and scanned it and then they printed it out in a high resolution printer onto tattoo paper and then they transfer that on now i sent you that paper vic and you might have seen some of the photos it also is pretty realistic it is yeah and um especially what i was really interested in is the nails because simulating illnesses or injuries on nails is pretty difficult to do Um, and if you've got somebody coming in with some sort of um, you know bacterial endocarditis was the example that they use like that's an amazing little visual that you could use to help cue your learners to that yeah and it just goes to show how existing in our own echo chambers we do because as an emergency medicine doctor I can't imagine a scenario that rested on some findings in the nail bed yeah uh, and yet you know clearly there are areas of practice where this is hugely important yeah. and I'm thinking we've got a colleague who works with us in our education group at the Gold Coast who's a rheumatologist yeah. and you know thinking about how you would manifest many of the physical signs that they uh, really rely on in terms of their diagnostic process yeah, exactly. And these are all like just tiny little things that I would have ordinarily gone, I don't know how to do that. That's too hard. You'll just just tell them that it's there. It'll be fine. Um, but when you're thinking about something that's so reliant on a specific diagnosis and you want it to be accurate. But I think the thing that stood out to me with this one was, you know, once you've created that print once you've created that photograph or that high-resolution image, you can print as many as you need mm. and there's probably a lot of application for sharing resources and it's probably a lot more cost-effective than handcrafting something super authentic. 
Yeah, that's so interesting. And I think this is really relevant, isn't it, coming back to our point? You can spend a lot of time on moulage, but you do want to make sure you're getting bang for buck in terms of engagement, realism, functional task alignment, whatever you want to call it. Uh, can I ask you, I'm going to take a little bit of a sideline here on two things. One is we've concentrated very much on visual aspects of realism, mm-hmm. uh, maybe a little bit on tactile, but we haven't actually talked about, but other things related to smell made me think about yeah. the um, podiatrist because I'm aware of some simulation I went to where they recreated the smell, but also auditory uh, mm. things. And, you know, does, does this not even make the grade with moulage? Is moulage purely a visual thing or does it extend to other aspects? Um, it's a really, really good question because when I did the Delphi study back in 2016, that was one of the things that came up but couldn't get consensus amongst all the people that were experts in moulage at the time. And a couple of people, you know, listed smell, but not enough that everyone went, yes, smell is absolutely part of moulage. Now, if you speak to a technician, Mm -hmm. I'm pretty confident they'll say to us, no, smell is part of moulage. And I know certainly from my conversations, people will assume that smell is part of that suite but you're right we we do very much focus on the visual and I think even the visual side like we don't even understand all of that one of the theories that I discovered was the theory of visual attention mm, yeah, and so some neuroscience at play here. yes and it is such a fascinating theory about what our eyes prioritize without us even considering it and mm. for me, so for those of you that aren't aware, it's theory of visual attention um, posits that there's a number of decisions being made for us by our cognitive processes based on what we see. And our brain will prioritise stuff that is highly illuminated, mm-hmm. has high contrast mm-hmm. and has well-defined edges. Interesting. And if it doesn't have those three things, the brain begins to just decide it's irrelevant and not worth considering. And this probably had some evolutionary advantage way back when. This is how we thought about the tiger coming after us or something. It was very, it got our attention. All right, so the next tangent I'm going to take you on, thinking about the sort of hyper-real and what business we have trying to portray things. So at one level you've got the simple thing, which is we've got a rash. A rash Mm. isn't too contentious a thing to try and put on anybody. Uh, then you've got at the other end, no one would ever try and moulage up, for instance, a white person to be a black person. We know that Mm. that is totally out of bounds. But then where do we come back in, do we feel like we want to send a message that this patient have heaps of tattoos because they were obviously a certain person who took Mm -hmm. an overdose, so we're going to put a bunch of tattoos on them or something, and yet we're sending a pretty strong not-so-hidden curriculum message when we make some of those choices about how we make people appear. Is there much discussion in the field about the sort of ethics, unconscious biases, uh, and what messages we might be sending when we do moulage? Not to that extent, although there has been some very kind of surface-level conversations around, hey, uh, most of our moulage is demonstrated on white-skinned people and Mm -hmm. How do we do that in dark-skinned, uh, yellow tones? Um, what does acne look like on me that's very light-skinned compared to somebody who has 
much more melanin is a lot darker. What does that look like? But I think you're right in in thinking, and I'm so interested in in all these ideas around stereotyping and and the subtle messages that we reinforce and and that we perpetuate. And um, I think that's where it comes back to thinking about, well, what is the purpose of this simulation and what is it that you're trying to get out of it? You know, is that really essential to getting the message across? No, then it's not, you know, don't add it in. Yeah, so be a bit thoughtful about it for sure. All right, well, I suppose uh, maybe we're sort of coming up to thinking about where do you see things going from here, both for the field and indeed for your interest in it? Hmm. Um, for the field, I think we're still really focusing a lot on descriptive research about moulage. There's lots of recipes and how-tos, which is fun. It's, you know, um, easy to do, but I think we've still got a lot of critical questions to ask and that's in subfields. Uh, nursing in particular, there's not really been a great deal of critical thinking around how do we use moulage in nursing? Is it okay to use a photograph versus actual moulage? Um, and it's asking those other questions about well, what is suspension of disbelief when it comes to moulage? But it also might be a it might be about empathy. It might be about that patient centeredness. It might be about those broader things it might be about safety and ppe Mm -hmm. um the things that are not so obvious that are becoming obvious as we begin to unpeel all this stuff so for me um it's about digging a little bit deeper into all of that um one of the things that i'm interested in exploring is how how do SPs feel, um, simulated patients and simulated persons feel um, wearing an injury all day Mm. What does that do to them? Um, do they actually go home going, gee, I think my arm is sore? Yeah. Because we certainly know from some of the literature around this, this does actually happen, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. 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 So, and and also I think just expanding that look at moulage in simulated patients because moulage traditionally has been a mannequin-based thing um, and there's really not a great deal of exploration around looking critically at it in simulated persons yeah can i just tell you a little story about that when we were doing the uh covid vaccination center simulations of course we were going through a whole bunch of things and people were getting a little band-aid for their simulated vaccinations as we were stepping through the process in the new space that we were doing it in and the next day a number of people came and said i feel like i had this ache in my arm where i'd got my vaccination except i hadn't had a vaccination (laughs) it turns out and so I think this suggestibility is something both we should recognize for the reasons that you just said but also potentially something we can capitalize on as well suggestibility is a very powerful uh, yeah 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 well this is very interesting and it sounds to me that we're going to potentially be toggling between asking participants what impact different moulage might have, observing their behaviours, shall we say, in response to them, and maybe even fancy techniques like having uh, various fMRI and other uh, techniques where we can actually look inside their brain and see what different Mm. things do to them. And I'm looking forward to seeing that because I can see all three of those sort of techniques being used to uh, explore the impact of moulage on our learners or simulation participants. Yeah, I agree. I, I think, look, the, the biggest take-home for me is don't make assumptions about moulage. Test it out. And especially with your participants of Sims, like run a pilot, 
with varied levels of moulage and work out what's that sweet spot. Yeah, fantastic. And you yourself, you which bits of this are you going to dive into? I think I'll, I'll be looking at some of the accessible resources around moulage. So I want to produce some open access content um, and some, I guess, I just I'm really interested in volume of students and one of the barriers for so many is is we've got you know a thousand students we can't possibly do moulage for every single one of them and what are the things that we can do to add enough visual cue to get them where they need to be and how can we share that amongst collaborators and you know I think the blue sky thinking is really to develop a, a theory of moulage and and what that looks like on its own um so, yeah, so it's going to be years years of work and lots of collaborations with people, I think, that are really interested in the same things. And I'm, I'm really excited. Like I said, I do watch my Google Scholar to see what comes through, but more out of interest because I just love to see what, what people are thinking about. So yeah, Well, you've heard it here, Simulcast listeners. If you want to get Jess's attention, just cite her in an article. <laughs> but uh, if you want to take the easy way out, of course, you can get onto her through our Simulcast page or uh, via Bond University where she works with me and my colleagues. Well, Jess, this is very exciting. Uh, and just as a reminder for our simulcast listeners, we've made reference to a few papers, including Jess's, but also some of the other ones that have been published recently. And we'll put links to those up on the post. And we'll look forward and check in a little bit sooner, I think, next time on where things are at, including your work. And if there are some open access uh, materials that people will find useful, we'll make sure that we highlight those on the podcast as well. But thank you so much, Jess. Oh, thanks for indulging me, Vic. <laughs> Anytime, Jess. All right, this is Victoria Brazel signing off for Simulcast. Thank you for listening to Simulcast.